Welcome to this podcast, which was recorded at the Australian Farm Institute's Roundtable on valuing agriculture's natural capital in October 2019. I'm Richard Heath, Executive Director of the AFI. The Roundtable interrogated opportunities to build natural capital in the ag sector and asked what support is needed to progress the implementation of ecosystem services in an Australian landscape. The three Roundtable sessions offered different insights into these topics. We hope you find value in these recordings of the speakers' presentations. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this session is planned to deal with the issues of the enablers, those support structures and systems necessary for a functioning and successful ecosystem services market in the future. My name's Andrew Spencer. I've got the honour of being the chair of the Australian Farm Institute, and I'm also the facilitator for this session of today's roundtable. And now for our second speaker, which is Professor Richard Eckhart. Richard's an academic and expert on agricultural responses to climate change. He's based at the University of Melbourne. He's also highly internationally connected on issues around climate policy and agriculture globally. So please welcome Richard. Thanks very much, and thank you to the Australian Farm Institute for the privilege of speaking here. Disclaimers up front, I am a university academic, so I'm speaking very much from the point of view of a research provider and the perceptions, so please take my views as, as one of sitting on that side of the equation. But also, I'm, I'm unashamed to use carbon farming as an example or case study as we go through this talk, just because that's an area that I spend time in and have some knowledge in. So I've stuck to this script, hopefully, and have addressed the questions that we were asked about. So do we have the R&D in place to support the development and implementation of ecosystem services? And I guess reflecting that my entire career so far, I think we've had this discussion around ecosystem services. So for me, it's not a new discussion. This is something we've been around a long time. And as a scientist, I have to confess that we're part of the problem because you can actually find there's not general agreement within the science on what the metrics are. How do we measure soil health, for example? We had a discussion at breakfast this morning and within a few seconds realized we didn't agree on the, on the indicators of soil health. So when it comes to things like sustainability, we, we, we struggle. And it's not as simple as more trees on farm as, as I think John was, was alluding to. It's not as simple as more soil carbon. There's more to the story. Yet we do see pressure coming from different sectors. So we see the bank and insurance sector. I've been approached just in the last few months from both of those on multiple occasions, looking for indicators of sustainability, looking for indicators of environmental credentials because they do see this link between sustainability and profitability. And we hear from the farming community, you know, whether it's chicken and egg, whether it's cause and effect, that you have to be in the black to be green. But we also see one of the major banks using this diagram here, which says those farms that have about 20% set aside land for biodiversity are achieving a price premium, a capital appreciation. They, they're seeing this link between the risk of their investment and sustainability or some form of ecosystem service. We also see the supply chain and multinationals looking for indicators of sustainability. Many are seeing carbon as a good predictor. So we're seeing them jump on the issue of carbon because suddenly along comes an international agreement, the Paris Agreement, a potential reward mechanism which might be carbon credits, and it gives them something to hang on and to put into their sustainability statement. Here, for example, is an example of an extract of the sustainability statements from a number of these multinationals. About two months ago, I revised this because I had 
three pages of this type of information that I'd extracted. And about two months ago, I noticed there'd been a distinct switch from most of them last year were emissions intensity-based metrics, so emissions per unit of product, so a, a, a profitability indicator. They've all switched to align with the Paris Agreement. So they've all switched to absolute reductions in emissions. And so there's this cascade effect that they're responding. But also what's important is that there's no indication of price premium in this requirement that seems to be coming through. But then something that came out of the Financial Times a few years back said that of the largest 100 economies in the world, 69 are companies, not countries. And that really got me thinking, actually, who's leading the show here? Is government policy becoming less relevant in the future? And actually, this is where the drive or leadership might actually be coming from. Because we're seeing governments struggling with carbon pricing, governments struggling with action on climate change, but the multinationals are getting on board with the Paris Agreement. So maybe we're looking in the wrong place for the leadership. And this came home to me recently when I was sitting in a uh, policy boardroom in Edmonton in, with the Alberta Carbon Scheme. One of the poli government policy people drew this normal distribution and said, we now see that government spends most of its time on the left-hand side just preventing laggards from doing the wrong thing. And actually, we now see that industry sit on the right-hand side of the normal distribution, pushing the market advantage, pushing the new innovations to, to market advantage. And so, you know, if we come back to that statement, are these 69 largest economies in the world the ones that are actually setting the pace into the future? And it could well be. But we also see that markets don't really want to pay for these ecosystem services. There are some examples where organic production has achieved a price premium. But then we've also seen in Denmark, for example, oversupply of organic milk being blended back into conventional milk because of oversupply. So, you know, you can actually go over the top on the uh, price premium. Currently, particularly in the red meat sector, we are seeing a price premium on international markets asking for carbon neutral red meat products, and I'll come to that as a case study. But it, it could quite easily flip across to being an expectation rather than a price premium. And we can see, for example, in this graph from the Meat Industry Strategic Plan that the bars above the line show the industry of the returns to the industry of investment in markets, for example, or productivity on farm being the last bar. But then, in this particular plan, we try to quantify, well, what if we got it wrong? What's the penalty of getting the community and customer support offsides? And that's that first bar you can see below the line. So, so we know, while there might not be a price premium, there could actually be a strong incentive to go down this route. And so, in the area of carbon neutral agriculture, we are starting to see first movers. This is all publicly available information. You can go to the various websites of these companies and see Arcadian Organic Meat, NAPCO have got a carbon neutral brand, Flinders and Co have got a carbon neutral red meat brand. Now, granted, they're doing nothing about the primary emissions sources on their property. They're just buying offsets, and good on them if that's what the market will take. Carbon neutral wine, we've had that on the market for a number of years, looking for that market differentiation as well. So at the moment, there is a premium that is incentivizing that, that action. And it, it's driven by a number of obvious initiatives. Meat and Livestock Australia is saying the Australian beef industry can be carbon neutral by 2030. What we forget is to quote the next line, which says given the right industry, R&D, and policy settings, all of which are currently missing. But that doesn't stop us. But it's driven by another, another initiatives around the world. So we've got the state of Mato Grosso do Sul in Brazil say, stating a carbon neutral target that clearly includes the livestock sector, and that is their major emission in that state, because a lot of their power comes from hydro sources. And the carbon neutral Brazilian beef brand, which is out trading into the European Union right now, at a market premium. So there are other movers around seeing the market advantage here. 
Also driven by our, our competitors like New Zealand proposing the zero carbon bill. We're seeing that as coming out in other jurisdictions around the world. Obviously, you're all familiar with the IPCC report, which suggests that diet moderation as part of the solution, and that's code for reduced red meat consumption. So there are clear drivers and signals there. Now, this is, this is my perspective. The, to the question of uh, do we have the R&D in place to support this, using carbon neutral agriculture as an example, and I'm referring more to the red or the livestock industries than the grains industries, my perception is that we have only about a fraction of the dollars in the RDCs to actually support the level of research that's needed to meet this target. As John pointed out, research through RDCs has to demonstrate a productivity gain. And so the only way we bring carbon into this equation is actually through income diversification. Is this another another income source for farmers adding to resilience. So, for example, the carbon offsets under, and I've got the string of various policy names, which probably highlights part of the problem, the number of policy changes we've been through. Do we have R&D to deliver those services? From a research provider point of view, we underestimate the problem. We underestimate the, the level of research required. Current one to three year funding cycle paradigms that we have are completely inappropriate for the kind of challenge we're looking at here. Ecosystem evidence itself is a multi-decadal issue. Soil carbon, we measure soil carbon in decadal time steps. We measure the benefit of trees growing in systems in, uh, in long time scales. We've got to remember rumen microbes and soil microbial populations, uh, they took millions of years, billions of years to evolve to where they are. Can we change them in a three-year funding research cycle? I suspect not. And so we need to rethink that. The other issue we've got and challenge from a research provider point of view is that given this, this short-term funding cycle that we have, we don't actually have the security of tenure, we don't have the succession planning we need in place, and we don't have the security of investment we can make in infrastructure required. And then in the carbon space in particular, we don't have the security of the policy environment to, to make progress here. So just that's from, from our perspective, how do we get the next generation of good quality scientists coming through? Uh, we need to be able to provide them with a longer term pathway to, uh, to their research careers. And so I, I guess my premise is there's no one R&D investor that can support the level of R&D required here, plus no one R&D provider can provide all the support required. We've lost a lot of critical mass in Australia, so we need partnerships. We need long-term commitments from all the partners. We need larger, more collaborative consortia that can deliver this research. So we have the public good investors, Commonwealth, state, and search providers like universities that can bring that focus into the public good aspects of ecosystem services. We've got the R&D corporations, as John said, they really, while it's not in their brief, they really have to make sure they look after the productivity aspects. So the partnership is essential. Where we've kind of missed the boat maybe is there's a lot of philanthropy investors in this space that approach universities wanting to invest in sustainable agriculture. We haven't really tapped into them in partnerships. And then industry itself, you know, that list of all these companies that are aiming for carbon neutral targets, well, we need to be saying to them, well, if you want that, you need to be part of the solution in putting dollars on the table in a serious way to the solution. So in summary, to answer those first two questions, do we have R&D in place? Can the required R&D be supported through current funding structures? I think we do need to move from where we are to more nationally collaborative research 
structures, longer-term partnerships between states, commonwealth, RDCs, industry, and philanthropy. And sorry, John, I think I missed the biggest target in there, which is the farming community themselves as a part of that partnership and actually driving that partnership. We need to look at longer-term investments in this area to say, well, this is the multi-decadal problem. This is a multi-decadal solution that needs a long timeline, move away from our three-year paradigms into genuine long-term partnerships to address these issues through national collaborative R&D structures and consortia to address it. And finally, who will take a lead? Well, we've actually seen where the lead is coming from, the, the drivers coming from the, the, the multinationals setting targets, and we're responding to what the perceptions are. So maybe we need to shift who we see as the lead and in, include them in the funding solution as well. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this recording from the Australian Farm Institute's Roundtable. Make sure you seek out others in this series and visit farminstitute.org.au for the accompanying slides or more information about our work. <laughs>